Chapter One, Part One of *The Stones of Venice*, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Wayman. *The Stones of Venice*, Volume Three, by John Ruskin. Chapter One: Early Renaissance, Part One i trust that the reader has been enabled by the preceding chapters to form some conception of the magnificence of the streets of venice during the course of the thirteenth and fourteenth centuries yet by all this magnificence she was not supremely distinguished above the other cities of the middle ages her early edifices have been preserved to our times by the circuit of her waves while continual recurrences of ruin have defaced the glory of her sister cities but such fragments as are still left in their lonely squares and in the corners of their streets so far from being inferior to the buildings of venice are even more rich more finished more admirable in invention more exuberant in beauty and although in the north of europe civilization was less advanced and the knowledge of the arts was more confined to the ecclesiastical orders so that for domestic architecture the period of perfection must be there placed much later than in italy and considered as extending to the middle of the fifteenth century yet as each city reached a certain point in civilization its streets became decorated with the same magnificence varied only in style according to the materials at hand and temper of the people and i am not aware of any town of wealth and importance in the middle ages in which some proof does not exist that at its period of greatest energy and prosperity its streets were inwrought with rich sculpture and even though in this as before noticed venice always stood supreme glowing with colour and with gold now therefore let the reader forming for himself as vivid and real a conception as he is able either of a group of venetian palaces in the fourteenth century or if he likes better of one of the more fantastic but even richer street scenes of rouen antwerp cologne or nuremberg and keeping this gorgeous image before him go out into any thoroughfare representative in a general and characteristic way of the feeling for domestic architecture in modern times let him for instance if in london walk once up and down harley street or baker street or gower street and then looking upon this picture and on this set himself to consider for this is to be the subject of our following and final inquiry what have been the causes which have induced so vast a change in the european mind renaissance architecture is the school which has conducted men's inventive and constructive faculties from the grand canal to gower street from the marble shaft and the lancet arch and the wreathed leafage and the glowing and melting harmony of gold and azure to the square cavity in the brick wall we have now to consider the causes and the steps of this change and as we endeavoured above to investigate the nature of gothic here to investigate also the nature of renaissance although renaissance architecture assumes very different forms among different nations it may be conveniently referred to three heads early renaissance consisting of the first corruptions introduced into the gothic schools central or roman renaissance which is the perfectly formed style and grotesque renaissance which is the corruption of the renaissance itself now 
in order to do full justice to the adverse cause we will consider the abstract nature of the school with reference only to its best or central examples the forms of building which must be classed generally under the term early renaissance are in many cases only the extravagances and corruptions of the languid gothic for whose errors the classical principle is in no wise answerable it was stated in the second chapter of the seven lamps that unless luxury had enervated and subtlety falsified the gothic forms roman traditions could not have prevailed against them and although these enervated and false conditions are almost instantly coloured by the classical influence it would be utterly unfair to lay to the charge of that influence the first debasement of the earlier schools which had lost the strength of their system before they could be struck by the plague the manner however of the debasement of all schools of art so far as it is natural is in all ages the same luxuriance of ornament refinement of execution and idle subtleties of fancy taking the place of true thought and firm handling and i do not intend to delay the reader long by the gothic sick-bed for our task is not so much to watch the wasting of fever in the features of the expiring king as to trace the character of that hazael who dipped the cloth in water and laid it upon his face nevertheless it is necessary to the completeness of our view of the architecture of venice as well as to our understanding of the manner in which the central renaissance obtained its universal dominion that we glance briefly at the principal forms into which venetian gothic first declined they are two in number one the corruption of the gothic itself the other a partial return to byzantine forms for the venetian mind having carried the gothic to a point at which it was dissatisfied tried to retrace its steps fell back first upon byzantine types and through them passed to the first roman but in thus retracing its steps it does not recover its own lost energy it revisits the places through which it had passed in the morning light but it is now with wearied limbs and under the gloomy shadows of evening it has just been said that the two principal causes of natural decline in any school are over luxuriance and over refinement the corrupt gothic of venice furnishes us with a curious instance of the one and the corrupt byzantine of the other we shall examine them in succession now observe first i do not mean by luxuriance of ornament quantity of ornament in the best gothic in the world there is hardly an inch of stone left unsculptured but i mean that character of extravagance in the ornament itself which shows that it was addressed to jaded faculties a violence and coarseness in curvature a depth of shadow a lusciousness in arrangement of line evidently arising out of an incapability of feeling the true beauty of chaste form and restrained power i do not know any character of design which may be more easily recognized at a glance than this over lusciousness and yet it seems to me that at the present day there is nothing so little understood as the essential difference between chasteness and extravagance whether in colour shade or lines we speak loosely and inaccurately of overcharged ornament with an obscure feeling that there is indeed something in visible form which is correspondent to intemperance in moral habits but without any distinct detection of the character which offends us far less with any understanding of the most important lesson which there can be no doubt was intended to be conveyed by the universality of this ornamental law in a word then 
the safeguard of highest beauty in all visible work is exactly that which is also the safeguard of conduct in the soul temperance in the broadest sense the temperance which we have seen sitting on an equal throne with justice amidst the four cardinal virtues and wanting which there is not any other virtue which may not lead us into desperate error now observe temperance in the nobler sense does not mean a subdued and imperfect energy it does not mean a stopping short in any good thing as in love or in faith but it means the power which governs the most intense energy and prevents its acting in any way but as it ought and with respect to things in which there may be excess it does not mean imperfect enjoyment of them but the regulation of their quantity so that the enjoyment of them shall be greatest for instance in the matter we have at present in hand temperance in colour does not mean imperfect or dull enjoyment of colour but it means that government of colour which shall bring the utmost possible enjoyment out of all hues a bad colourist does not love beautiful colour better than the best colourist does nor half so much but he indulges in it to excess he uses it in large masses and unsubdued and then it is a law of nature a law as universal as that of gravitation that he shall not be able to enjoy it so much as if he had used it in less quantity his eye is jaded and satiated and the blue and red have life in them no more he tries to paint them bluer and redder in vain all the blue has become grey and gets greyer the more he adds to it all his crimson has become brown and gets more sere and autumnal the more he deepens it but the great painter is sternly temperate in his work he loves the vivid colour with all his heart but for a long time he does not allow himself anything like it nothing but sober browns and dull greys and colours that have no conceivable beauty in them but these by his government become lovely and after bringing out of them all the life and power they possess and enjoying them to the uttermost cautiously and as the crown of the work and the consummation of its music he permits the momentary crimson and azure and the whole canvas is in a flame again in curvature which is the cause of loveliness in all form the bad designer does not enjoy it more than the great designer but he indulges in it till his eye is satiated and he cannot obtain enough of it to touch his jaded feeling for grace but the great and temperate designer does not allow himself any violent curves he works much with lines in which the curvature though always existing is long before it is perceived he dwells on all these subdued curvatures to the uttermost and opposes them with still severer lines to bring them out in fuller sweetness and at last he allows himself a momentary curve of energy and all the work is in an instant full of life and grace the curves drawn in plate seven of the first volume were chosen entirely to show this character of dignity and restraint as it appears in the lines of nature together with the perpetual changefulness of the degrees of curvature in one and the same line but although the purpose of that plate was carefully explained in the chapter which it illustrates as well as in the passages of modern painters therein referred to so little are we now in the habit of considering the character of abstract lines that it was thought by many persons that this plate only illustrated hogarth's reverse line of beauty 
even although the curve of the salvia leaf which was the one taken from that plate for future use in architecture was not a reversed or serpentine curve at all i shall now however i hope be able to show my meaning better figure one in plate one opposite is a piece of ornamentation from a norman french manuscript of the thirteenth century and figure two from an italian one of the fifteenth observe in the first its stern moderation in curvature the gradually united lines nearly straight though none quite straight used for its main limb and contrasted with the bold but simple offshoots of its leaves and the noble spiral from which it shoots these in their turn opposed by the sharp trefoils and thorny cusps and see what a reserve of resource there is in the whole how easy it would have been to make the curves more palpable and the foliage more rich and how the noble hand has stayed itself and refused to grant one wave of motion more then observe the other example in which while the same idea is continually repeated excitement and interest are sought for by means of violent and continual curvatures wholly unrestrained and rolling hither and thither in confused wantonness compare the character of the separate lines in these two examples carefully and be assured that wherever this redundant and luxurious curvature shows itself in ornamentation it is a sign of jaded energy and failing invention do not confuse it with fullness or richness wealth is not necessarily wantonness a gothic moulding may be buried half a foot deep in thorns and leaves and yet will be chaste in every line and a late renaissance moulding may be utterly barren and poverty-stricken and yet will show the disposition to luxury in every line plate twenty in the second volume though prepared for the special illustration of the notices of capitals becomes peculiarly interesting when considered in relation to the points at present under consideration the four leaves in the upper row are byzantine the two middle rows are transitional all but figure eleven which is of the formed gothic figure twelve is perfect gothic of the finest time ducal palace oldest part figure thirteen is gothic beginning to decline figure fourteen is renaissance gothic in complete corruption now observe first the gothic naturalism advancing gradually from the byzantine severity how from the sharp hard formalized conventionality of the upper series the leaves gradually expand into more free and flexible animation until in figure twelve we have the perfect living leaf as if fresh gathered out of the dew and then in the last two examples and partly in figure eleven observe how the forms which can advance no longer in animation advance or rather decline into luxury and effeminacy as the strength of the school expires in the second place note that the byzantine and gothic schools however differing in degree of life are both alike in temperance though the temperance of the gothic is the nobler because it consists with entire animation observe how severe and subtle the curvatures are in all the leaves from figure one to figure twelve except only in figure eleven and observe especially the firmness and strength obtained by the close approximation to the straight line in the lateral ribs of the leaf figure twelve the longer the eye rests on these temperate curvatures the more it will enjoy them but it will assuredly in the end be wearied by the morbid exaggeration of the last example finally observe and this is very important 
how one and the same character in the work may be a sign of totally different states of mind and therefore in one case bad and in the other good the examples figure three and figure twelve are both equally pure in line but one is subdivided in the extreme the other broad in the extreme and both are beautiful the byzantine mind delighted in the delicacy of subdivision which nature shows in the fern leaf or parsley leaf and so also often the gothic mind much enjoying the oak thorn and thistle but the builder of the ducal palace used great breadth in his foliage in order to harmonize with the broad surface of his mighty wall and delighted in this breadth as nature delights in the sweeping freshness of the dock leaf or water lily both breadth and subdivision are thus noble when they are contemplated or conceived by a mind in health and both become ignoble when conceived by a mind jaded and satiated the subdivision in figure thirteen as compared with the type figure twelve which it was intended to improve is the sign not of a mind which loved intricacy but of one which could not relish simplicity which had not strength enough to enjoy the broad masses of the earlier leaves and cut them to pieces idly like a child tearing the book which in its weariness it cannot read and on the other hand we shall continually find in other examples of work of the same period an unwholesome breadth or heaviness which results from the mind having no longer any care for refinement or precision nor taking any delight in delicate forms but making all things blunted cumbrous and dead losing at the same time the sense of the elasticity and spring of natural curves it is as if the soul of man itself severed from the root of its health and about to fall into corruption lost the perception of life in all things around it and could no more distinguish the wave of the strong branches full of muscular strength and sanguine circulation from the lax bending of a broken cord nor the sinuousness of the edge of the leaf crushed into deep folds by the expansion of its living growth from the wrinkled contraction of its decay thus in morals there is a care for trifles which proceeds from love and conscience and is most holy and a care for trifles which comes of idleness and frivolity and is most base and so also there is a gravity proceeding from thought which is most noble and a gravity proceeding from dullness and mere incapability of enjoyment which is most base now in the various forms assumed by the later gothic of venice there are one or two features which under other circumstances would not have been signs of decline but in the particular manner of their occurrence here indicate the fatal weariness of decay of all these features the most distinctive are its crockets and finials there is not to be found a single crocket or finial upon any part of the ducal palace built during the fourteenth century and although they occur on contemporary and on some much earlier buildings they either indicate detached examples of schools not properly venetian or are signs of incipient decline the reason of this is that the finial is properly the ornament of gabled architecture it is the compliance in the minor features of the building with the spirit of its towers ridged roof and spires venetian building is not gabled but horizontal in its roots and general masses therefore the finial is a feature contradictory to its spirit and adopted only in that search for morbid excitement which is the infallible indication of decline when it occurs earlier it is on fragments of true gabled architecture as for instance on the porch of the carmini 
in proportion to the unjustifiableness of its introduction was the extravagance of the form it assumed becoming sometimes a tuft at the top of the ogee windows half as high as the arch itself and consisting in the richest examples of a human figure half emergent out of a cup of leafage as for instance in the small archway of the campo san zaccaria while the crockets as being at the side of the arch and not so strictly connected with its balance and symmetry appear to consider themselves at greater liberty even than the finials and fling themselves hither and thither in the wildest contortions figure four in plate one is the outline of one carved in stone from the later gothic of st mark's figure three a crocket from the fine veronese gothic in order to enable the reader to discern the renaissance character better by comparison with the examples of curvature above them taken from the manuscripts and not content with this exuberance in the external ornaments of the arch the finial interferes with its traceries the increased intricacy of these as such being a natural process in the development of gothic would have been no evil but they are corrupted by the enrichment of the finial at the point of the cusp corrupted that is to say in venice for at verona the finial in the form of a fleur-de-lis appears long previously at the cusp point with exquisite effect and in our own best northern gothic it is often used beautifully in this place as in the window from salisbury plate twelve volume two figure two but in venice such a treatment of it was utterly contrary to the severe spirit of the ancient traceries and the adoption of a leafy finial at the extremity of the cusps in the door of san stefano as opposed to the simple ball which terminates those of the ducal palace is an unmistakable indication of a tendency to decline in like manner the enrichment and complication of the jamb mouldings which in other schools might and did take place in the healthiest periods are at venice signs of decline owing to the entire inconsistency of such mouldings with the ancient love of the square jam and archivolt the process of enrichment in them is shown by the successive examples given in plate seven below they are numbered and explained in the appendix End of chapter 1, part 1